Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. Science. (laughs) Never excessive. Never excessive. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods, UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. Today, we are going to discuss the academic article and implementation study of relationship checkups as home visitation for low-income at-risk couples, published by our very special guest, Christina Coop Gordon. Capitalizing on our guest's expertise, we are going to discuss some advice on infidelity. And Jacob will delight us with some pop culture magic yet to be revealed to us. We shall see. But, dun, be- dun, dun. <laughs> but before we get to all of that, how are you all doing? Uh, we're doing well out here in Iowa. It is the middle of caucus season, like the pinnacle oh, of caucus my. season. That's so cool. we've got free concerts from Bon Iver going on. <laughs> Jonathan Van Ness is going to be about two miles away from my house in a few hours. Oh my gosh, are you Um, going to see him? uh, I hope so. Uh, Chelsea's at work right now because she can't get enough of loft and loft clothing. Hey, um, they should be a sponsor for us. Uh, So (laughs) Uh I agree. That's definitely going to happen. Hopefully, because it's snowy and miserable, uh, she'll get to come home early and maybe we'll swing by there. Um, but also, because it is snowy and miserable, last night, one of our neighbors had a comfort food potluck. Wow. It was amazing. Oh. Uh, yeah, like all of the macaroni and cheese, potato casserole, enchilada casserole, oh meatloaf, peanut casserole. butter and jelly sandwiches, oh. hot toddies. It was amazing. I did wow. not want to wake up this morning. So it was, <laughs> amazing. It was a lot of fun. I am, uh, I'm not doing that well. I didn't have hot toddies last night. Um, but it is the weekend, so I'm living that toddler birthday party life. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yesterday we went to a birthday party that was, it beat all the other toddler oh parties. Oh my. I, yeah. We, we walked in and um, we all went, what is happening? They had uh, rented out like multiple helium tanks and then just had all uh, the whole house was just full of balloons oh lining gosh. the ceilings with that's amazing um, this incredible massive bounce house slide thing um they had a dj and a popcorn oh machine and a face painter what? and they had adult <laughs> snack tables they had a place where you could take like pictures with this unicorn i mean it, uh, they had somebody in a unicorn costume it was unbelievable Quick question did the parents yeah. look like their hair was like all out. No. See, no. I find that wildly inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Like if, you're, if your birthday party is gonna look like that, you uh, you need to look like trash. Like what? what I mean, they, like stressed out, right? Jeez no. Louise. Nope. They were lovely and relaxed and had. I mean, it was unbelievable. Cakes with uh, multiple birthday cakes. Uh, cookies <laughs> with the kids' name on. Jesse and I were like, we 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 were encouraging each other to like take stuff and put it in our. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We wanted all kinds of goodies. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so even though I usually don't always look forward to those Saturdays, yesterday we were like, well, this is, this is the life right here. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, 
Things are going well here. We had a little bit of a cold spell in Knoxville, um, but it's what it got down to like fifty degrees. <laughs> Don't tell me about cold spells. Listen, Don't tell me about cold listen, spells. Fair point. Fair point. Um, but no, I mean it was like the thirties is the high. Like that's legit cold. Um, and yesterday was just a chill day. I, I had a fun time with my kids and uh, another mother and her two kiddos, and we went and ran like a kids race at the zoo. It was oh, a lot of fun. Cool. It was like a one-mile kids race, and uh, the kids were running really, really fast. And my three-year-old would just took off, and my six-year-old and I were like looking at each other. We're like, "Where is he? Where is he?" So we were like running fast to try and keep up with him. But like a third of the way through, my three-year-old was like, "He said no more running," and he just stunned. <laughs> I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so we walked the rest of the time, and it's through the zoo, so you get to like go run by animals right so he would just stop and we would stop and look at elephants and like we should probably go. that's awesome and he was like no i'm gonna stay here and watch. <laughs> so the first third was intense running followed by a leisurely <laughs> stroll through the knoxville zoo that's that's a good way to see the zoo i think so needless yeah. to say definitely did not win that <laughs> it feels like a lot of zoo trips I've made myself, though, where no race was involved. Like, there's a lot of high energy in the beginning, and then you're like, ah, we're just going to sit by the zebras for a while. <laughs> this is a long walk. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, without further delay, I'd like to introduce our current guest, Dr. Christina Coop Gordon, a professor and director of the clinical psychology program at the University of Tennessee and director of Healthy Connections Knoxville. Christy, thanks for coming on Attached. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So please tell us mm -hmm. um, a little bit of background about yourself, maybe some of your research, and this um, uh, new, very fascinating project, Healthy Connections, Knoxville. Okay. Well, I like to say that I started my career sort of exploring the dark underbelly of research or of relationships. Um, I love that. Um, and so really what I, well, actually, I was started a little bit more positive than that. I was really interested in this idea of forgiveness, how do couples forgive each other, partly because one of my first couples that I ever saw in a clinic, I was doing cognitive behavioral couples therapy with them, and it just wouldn't go in anywhere. And as I dug around in it, I discovered that they had had this huge fight that they experienced as a betrayal around wedding china, choosing their wedding china. Wow. Oh, wow. Which seemed like such a small thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but as we dug into it, like, the meaning of this fight led to this huge betrayal, and then it just sort of snowballed in their relationship. So I started getting interested in this idea of forgiveness. Um, but then as you start to get interested in forgiveness, of course, it leads you to infidelity, right? Yeah. And so that's where I yeah. landed for a while. Uh, wrote a couple books with my colleagues Don Bauckham and Doug Snyder um, on infidelity. Did some work in that area. That also led me to intermittent partner violence, right? Because that's another major betrayal mm, that yeah. goes on. So a fair amount of my research looks pretty dark. Um, <laughs> although it's actually, the, the working with people, I have to say, is really rewarding because a lot of people can really bounce back yeah. from these experiences, um, mm -hmm. can get their lives back on track. But what's really clear to me is they just wait so long to get into our offices and it feels like they've broken their legs and they're hobbling around like with broken legs for right. seven years before they come in. And it's so hard to get things turned around. So I would say the last 10 years of my career, I've been trying to focus more on how do we get to people earlier and how do we do more prevention yes. work, really getting into this idea of public health um, and where public health and relationship science might overlap mm -hmm. um, and doing real interventions that are more micro interventions but actually have a huge impact, mm -hmm. which is the study that Patricia and I kind of came together on. And then so after that study, uh, what was really depressing is 
it was a great study. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Yeah. But um, it ended because the grant ended. Right. And we got screwed on the second round of grant. Yeah, it was their fault. Oh. It was totally their fault. Yeah, it really was. not ours by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, but I, essentially what was really sad is that what we realized during the course of running that first grant is that there are almost no low-income no um, resources for low-income couples yeah. to stabilize mm-hmm. their relationships. Mm-hmm. And they really are hurting, and they suffer more than you know, mm-hmm. more educated or more wealthy couples in terms of the, the effects when their relationships break apart. And so I really started thinking, like, how can we get something going in the Knoxville community and not have it be dependent on grants, because grants come and go? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting, this guy from a local mega church approached me and said he wanted to start doing empirically supported relationship education in churches. That's amazing. Cool. That's that is amazing. amazing. Wow. It was. And he's a really great guy. He's a clinical psychologist by training, loves research, like on his own, goes and reads the research and then brings it back. And so he had already found out about PrEP. Um, yeah. Just you probably know about PrEP, uh, Program Out of Denver, that has a ton of research behind it, and they're constantly updating mm-hmm. it. So it's a really great empirical program. It's mostly um, premarital? Nope. Nope. It started as premarital. Okay. In fact, I was one of the um, trainers in the very, very first trial really? of it back in the uh, early really? 1990s. That's yes. amazing. Because uh, I think when Scott and Howie were developing it, they got all their friends to like try it out in their communities. And I was a graduate mm-hmm. student at UNC, and Don was one of the people, Don Bauckham was one of the people that was uh, testing it out. So I was one of the, the people in the church. Like, they ran it in churches, actually. Yeah, wow. So I was one of the people mm-hmm. that tested it out. Um, so that started as premarital, but it's developed over the years for everybody. And so they do it for couples. They do it. There's a version for singles that's really cool. Nice. So we're doing prep in churches, and we got sort of a local good-sized grant to pilot it there. Um, but the problem is, as I was just talking with you, is that there's so many people who don't go to church who really need these interventions. Mm-hmm. So what I've ended up doing, the guy that started has sort of stepped back, and I've sort of stepped up, and I'm taking over this program, and we're taking it out of the churches and into the community. That's really cool. So we've got a ton of community agencies that are really interested. We've got the city mayor, the county mayor, um, a East Tennessee Foundation now, like all these huge um, fundraisers now that are starting to say, this is a really important yes. um, issue, and there's nothing. No one's doing this, and so mm-hmm. we're hoping that this sort of nonprofit will step into the breach and, and start providing services, but also doing a lot of outreach and, and doing kind of step care, where we'll do like the home visitation program we'll talk about, these workshops, but also have for people that still need more therapy right. there on site that people yeah. can come and do get. So, yeah. So yeah. that's what so the people who is. might need more mm-hmm. intensive than these brief mm-hmm. interventions, that yep. there'll be a streamlined process yep. to get them right into there. That's really cool. Yeah. And given what we found in um this other program like people need like wraparound services so the Mm -hmm. idea is that it wouldn't just be coming in for these therapy but there'd also be like somebody on site that would help with sort of emotional and physical health somebody on site that if they're underemployed they could get connected with preparedness exactly yeah also what i really want is someone on site to help them navigate how to get into community colleges yes because it's such a byzantine process right and in um, Knoxville, community colleges, that first two years is actually mm-hmm. free. Yep, exactly. So. so so really, but if you could help them kind of navigate that process of getting enrolled, then they could be really, I think, successful. So, But having someone to kind of walk them through that process so it doesn't feel so overwhelming right. would be really cool. Absolutely. Very exciting. Um, and I cannot wait to talk about the research that we're about to talk mm-hmm. about and then get you in talking about some of this advice about infidelity. Yeah. But... Christy, mm. yes. are you ready for some pop and culture? <laughs> Absolutely. Here we go. <laughs> All right. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family. 
but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture, TV, movies, and reality shows. For the first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. So Jacob, what do you have for us this week? I cannot wait. Well, before I jump in, I just want to give a shout out to Scott, Scott. for keeping uh, for keeping our wonderful professor uh, from Florida State, Lenore McWay, awake <laughs> with introducing her to flirty dancing. So flirty again, dancing. for listeners of the podcast, if you have not seen flirty dancing yet, you got to check it out. Uh, I Admittedly, think the final I did go down a YouTube hole after yes. last last. <laughs> episode and saw some flirty dancing action and it was absolutely adorable it, you can't watch it and not smile it's like true. if you are having a terrible day go watch some flirty dancing anyway today we're gonna leave the reality television realm and go to some scripted television okay i love so some scripted any, television has anybody seen sex education on netflix no but i oh, do okay. love jillian anderson oh yeah so this this show stars Gillian Anderson from X-Files and um, lots of other stuff. And it's an iconness. Yes, and I just being a, a badass. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what we know her from. This centers around her, and she's a sex and couples therapist, and her son, Ooh. who's 16. And what I love about this show is that it shows the complexity of relationships, especially relationships organized around sex. Right, and okay. makes, it makes the case, which I think is a really interesting idea, of how most relationships sometimes organize, especially during adolescence, around this idea of sex and trying to figure out who we are as sexual beings. Um, so I wanna read briefly, uh, this was out of The Atlantic when they reviewed it, because I really think this captures the essence of sex education. So it says, sex education's defining characteristic is the ability to find a balance between gleeful gross out comedy and sex and sex positive pathos the message the show preaches over and over isn't that sex is good or bad it's unequivocally accepted as a thing that people enjoy for primal and emotional reasons okay the series unpacks how in real life in particular in pop culture sex tends to be portrayed as something that's given or taken a kind of currency, mm. not a mutual accord. Mm. As irreverent as it can be about inconvenient boners or fruit <laughs> used as sex aids, it also fully comprehends the pain and humiliation that can That's be good. a part of that process. And rather mm. than present teenagers as hapless hormone monsters and adults as joyless scolds, sex education makes everyone equally bad at asking for what they want and offering it to others ah. in return. And that's oh, what cool. I love about this show is the complexity they show in these relationships. So um, in season two... Uh, it just dropped on Netflix, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I just finished it. I oh. may, may or may not have been watched it. But uh, <laughs> on season two, Jean, who's played by Gillian Anderson, is in a new relationship. And her son, Otis, who I forget who plays him, he's really upset about it because his dad left when he was young and has been really absent. And it comes to find out that Otis is dating Jean's boyfriend's daughter. Oh. And it talks about the complexity of that, and then they're kind of it's navigating this idea of, of sex, relationships, like, and how that even navigates between uh, mother and son, between father and daughter. So I think that if you want to watch good entertaining television that will challenge some of your assumptions about sex, it'll push you to some uncomfortable places too. <laughs> 
I can't recommend it more highly, so check it out. <laughs> it's only eight seasons an episode. You can finish it in a weekend, and it's great. So check out Sex Education. That's great. Fantastic. Is this something oh. that um, could be watched with um, a child? No. <laughs> <laughs> what about a 14-year-old? Yeah, like I think if you've got teenagers, they might want to watch it on your own, on their own, <laughs> and the parents could watch it. And they come talk about it later. And then, like, oh, did you watch this part? I yeah. mean, because there may be some things that you're sitting there next to your teenager, they might feel a little bit uncomfortable yeah. with we've, the parent in the room. We've had those moments, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think my crazy ex-girlfriend created really? a lot of those moments. Actually. Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. I remember oh. watching accidentally Outlander with my parents oh. as a grown adult, and my yeah. parents as a grown adult, and. There's this uh, yes. a surprisingly cunnilingus scene, and I was like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom. Yeah. I full on, well, actually, yep. I knew it was coming. Sorry, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I was with my sister and my parents, and I, right before it came, I went upstairs and went to the bathroom, stayed in for a while. I came back, and my sister, who had watched the entire scene with my parents, was just staring daggers at me. I was like, sorry, why didn't you warn me? <laughs> I did not warn her at all. I just, it was, it yeah. was self preservation at that point. I just left mm -hmm. the room. We have one of those moments at our house. It's called the infamous monsters ball moment where my husband and I watched it with my dad. Um, it was horrible. Just oh. horrible. And as adults, you know, yeah. you would like to think that you could be more mature sure. about these things sure. and handle it. No. Um, no. Nope. It just doesn't happen that way. Well, and that's no. what I love about sex education. So Jean's character, she's supposed to be the one that has it all together about relationships and sex. sex and therapist. it just shows that, like... Even people who have a lot of knowledge around something sometimes do it terribly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's kind of refreshing to me in some ways. <laughs> well, that is fantastic. You have encouraged me to uh, watch it, but figuring out a time and place to watch it, not with my six and three-year-old. Yeah, I wouldn't. I think you'd avoid that. And, and the British accents are amazing, which also me. makes it. Amazing. Oh. I'm a sucker for a British accent. Yeah. Yeah, so, ditto. So I'm there for it. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment. We're gonna discuss a recent paper published in Family Process titled An Implementation Study of Relationship Checkout as Home Visitations for Low-Income At-Risk Couples. The study was done by our guest today, Dr. Christina Coop-Gordon, along with colleagues, uh, Dr. James Cordova, myself, <laughs> Melanie Miller, uh, Catherine Langer, Matt Haralenko and Carrie Martin. A link to the article, as always, is available on this episode's description, and we have shared it on Twitter. So because we have a guest this week, we're going to do things a little bit differently, and we're going to kind of try and pull the curtain back on this study process um, and how we published it and all of those things, but we're obviously going to talk to you about it first. <laughs> um, we originally got Christy on the pod because of a tweet I said that I thought would be really great for the podcast. I tweeted it out by Rashiba Square. I said, uh, the tweet said, married people, tell me about the stupid reoccurring arguments you and your spouse just cannot, will not stop having. And, and Christy was basically like, oh, isn't this the study that we just published? <laughs> Wasn't it what the intervention was based on? And I was like, oh, yeah. You want to come on the pod? <laughs> and she was like, yeah. And I was like, thank you. Um, so before we get to the findings of this paper, Christy, can you talk us through kind of the basis of the relationship checkup and why when you saw that tweet, you're like, Patricia, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah the marriage checkup was actually originally created by James Cordova up at Clark University. And 
it's sort of like this distillation of a longer couple therapy called integrated behavioral couple therapy and motivational interviewing. And so it's really only two sessions. And the idea is trying to get to, get to couples um, before they identify themselves as distressed and needing therapy. So it is a mm-hmm. little bit of, it's not prevention exactly, but it's not intervention. It's in that kind of sweet spot of secondary work. And so um, the idea is also it's not therapy. It should be less intimidating to people. And right. it's this idea of just like you go you know, to the dentist and get your teeth checked out and you go get your car tuned up and right. you go to the primary care physician to get checked out. We should do the same thing with our relationship. Exactly. We should take care of our relationship health from the yeah. same idea and get marriage checkups every year. And that kind of metaphor really mm-hmm. worked for people when we were trying to recruit them, just pitching it just mm-hmm. like that. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, like obviously that does, that yeah. makes sense. But we mm-hmm. oftentimes don't think of our relationship as needing a tune up because kind of culturally, um, and I guess kind of morally, we're expected to, our relationship should just be perfect and should just be if it's working. Right. Um, you know, if it's a good relationship, it'll just work. And always be good. And, yes. and there's something wrong with us for some with reason that's not, which is right. kind of crazy when you really step back and think about it. Because, you know, I've been married now almost 25 years, 25 years in December. Wow. And our relationship now is not like what it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's been up and down and up and down. And that's, you know, really normal. But I don't Absolutely. think we talk about that. Right. And so the checkup, what's really cool is the reason why I answered that tweet was it's sort of based on IBCT, which is that couples get into these patterns. And some of these patterns yeah. are just unsolvable patterns because they come about because mm-hmm. there are two different people in relationship with right. each other. And because we're two different people, we are always going to do these things that are gonna rub up and bump up against each other and piss each other off. Right. Um, and if we can learn to understand why that's happening and accept that that's gonna happen, we're gonna do a lot better than if I'm pissed off that you do it and I keep trying to change you. Right. Because the more I try to change you, the more polarized we get. And the more I'm going to dig my, my uh, heels in and be exactly. like, F exactly. that. Like, I am not going to change. Right. And I'm going to change. I'm going to up it a little bit. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I've never done anything like that. I mean, I've only been married six months, but I've never, never done right. anything like that. One of those perfect right. marriages. Right. right. Yeah. Give it another month. <laughs> <laughs> So, thank you very much. Okay. Let's um, dig into what the findings were. So we, uh, mostly Christy, but I'm going to say we here, yeah. the, implemented this brief intervention um, with 1,312 couples in the Knoxville area um, over the course of... Participants, not quite that many couples, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Participants, yeah. <laughs> shit. Uh, we enrolled um, 1,000, sorry, yeah. it was around 600. I sorry. It was right. around... Uh, right. I definitely was like, whoa. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. We were very busy. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, it was around um, just over 600 participants, uh, mm-hmm. 600 couples. Right. That's still, a, um, that's amazing. It's still it was amazing. amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. It was crazy. It's incredible. It was crazy. Uh, I a lot of work. Definitely, I definitely know this study. Um, so before and after the intervention, they completed an, um, an assessment or a survey measuring, among many things, the assessments that were specifically in this study, which included relationship satisfaction, um, constructive communication, psychological and physical aggression, um, and emotional intimacy or couple intimacy um, before the intervention and then one month after the intervention. There was also a six-month follow-up, but that really only included uh, relationship satisfaction. So, what I think is absolutely amazing about this 
study and what we found, and I could say that because it wasn't originally my idea, <laughs> um, is that all participants reported improving significantly across all of those measures. So this very brief two-session intervention improved couples on across all of these markers of relationship health. In particular, the, the couples who reported um, having the most distress before they came in actually improved the most. So it's really quite effective among those couples who maybe were more distressed than, than others. I, when I was reading this article, I was just, hey, first of all, we kind of alluded to this, blown away at the recruitment y'all did. Like to be yeah. able to get this many people to get them in the two sessions, that really shows the connections you do have in the community and that you're building, which I just think is awesome. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. second, um, the the process you went through to kind of tease out some of these results and show them, and we'll talk about these more in a bit, I thought it was just really accessible and really meaningful. Yeah. And that's why I was so excited yeah. we were gonna talk about this today because I think it shows, you know, we'll talk about, I mean like, <laughs> putting the cart before the horse here, how important those checkups, those relationship checkups yeah. are, and how they don't really have to be this big of deal either and can still right. enhance relationship quality. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I think is so freaking cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is really cool. So speaking of what you're talking about, re recruitment, there were some like lessons learned about recruitment and retention along the way. It's not like the study kind of started uh, recruiting people you it know, falls to the wall. <laughs> yeah. So um, I popped in the study in the middle of, of the study, kind mm -hmm. of more as the data manager, mm -hmm. the statistician type person. Um, but Christy, do you want to talk about some of the lessons learned for the recruiting yeah. and retention process? Um, yeah. One is, um, oh gosh, I mean, one of the things that we did um, from the very beginning that I think was really helpful was... I alluded earlier that we had done this project with Latino couples, um, mm -hmm. and they were primarily non-English non speaking, low income, and we were going to have them come to these workshops, which our community mm -hmm. people said, huh, right. <laughs> so we ended up doing home visitation format, and it was so much better. So I took that into this project because right. you really just can't expect people who have crazy, crazy lives to come to you. Um, but even doing that, it was still very difficult to reach people. So we partnered a lot, like you said, with people in the community, particularly this um, Cherokee Health Systems, which is an integrative healthcare mm -hmm. facility here in Knoxville mm -hmm. that's phenomenal. Um, and so, but we had to do a lot of selling to the staff there because they, first of all, didn't believe that we were right. in two sessions going to make a change. So they thought it was a total waste of time. Um, and even if, if people believe in um, behavioral mm -hmm. health and the importance of it, selling them on relationship health a whole tends to be level. a whole yes. next yeah. step was, yeah. as well. That was hard. And they kept thinking it was just icing on the cake. And I ha kept having to go back in there saying, no, 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 this is the basis of a lot of issues. Like we had a lovely story yeah. that if I have time, someone who was really depressed, a lot of the root of her depression was the problem in her relationship. And I think mm. sure. we helped turn that around. But, but so it, we had to sell the staff. And but once we, so one of the ways we sold the staff is there's a pediatric arm of Cherokee, and we gave all the staff the intervention, along with the gift cards and everything, to get them all in. <laughs> so they became participants. So they became the staff. participants. That's, yeah, yeah, that's just great. And they loved it. And it was funny because one of our recruiters walked by and overheard them talking about it in the staff room. And they're like, oh my God, I had sex for the first time in a long time after I did this. And somebody else was like, yeah, my husband brought me flowers, and he hasn't done that in two years, oh. you know? And so. And they're like, how long, wow. you know, how often do you get to, because part of the intervention is we start with a lot of positives. Like, what do you love about this person? Why did you decide that person's mm -hmm. the one? 
what are the strengths? And you have to sit and listen to the other person talk about what they love about the relationship. Yeah. And so they were talking about how you never do that. And so even couples that weren't distressed were finding it was really fun. So that yeah. was really important because then they were able to go and sell it as fun. Sell it. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. To the couples. Brilliant. And so they became our biggest recruitment source. And down the so line, cool. one of the things we found out was that one of the, the largest percentages of our uh, recruitment mm-hmm. actually came from word of mouth. Yes. Friends so and family. Yeah. Friends and family convincing oh. other people to come. So if you look at like the numbers of recruitment, by the end, it was just skyrocketed mm-hmm. because we had a lot of people. And we even had people come in the second year trying to get it again, which yeah. of course we yeah. let them do it. I love it. Um, so it yeah. is one of those things that once people realized that it was easy, not scary, it mm-hmm. actually was kind of fun, right. Right. it just spread like wildfire. And one of the things- I think it's one of my- Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, I think that's one of my favorite parts of this paper is just this little piece in here about how at first you described that participants were interested in doing the checkup, they said, for the financial incentive, for the money. And then they were interested in completing it and doing the feedback Mm -hmm. session because they were interested in learning more. And then they said, can you come back to our neighborhood and do it with our friends and family? This is so cool. Which is just like the most powerful description of- how amazing your intervention is and how it can be. Um, these participants were so receptive yeah. to it. It's fascinating. Yeah. We had a ghost recruiter at the end who um, had come in, I think at a six months to pick up his gift card in person and then got a ton of our brochures and was walking around his housing development saying, looking at couples Stop. going, you look like you love each other. You need to go see these people because yeah. they really care about you. Yeah. Oh, that's Stop. amazing. I know. And that's so cool. That's the other piece I was going to say. The other thing we did kind of early, I think this was before you even jumped mm-hmm. in, is um, I was going to say about recruitment is they it was a bear to get these people because they wouldn't answer their phone they wouldn't like we'd go out to do the intervention and we'd see the guy down the street like delivering you know helping his neighbor move his refrigerator instead of doing the intervention and our staff was getting really ticked off about this and really angry and so we actually did a, a training about um, just helping train people about uh, generational poverty and all the different sort of mm-hmm. cultural norms around that so that they mm-hmm. had more of an understanding about why these things were happening and they wouldn't mm-hmm. get so frustrated or angry with our folks. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I remember like during um, in kind of in an effort to um, keep retention up, mm-hmm. but building off what you're saying is we had a policy where you know people would get calling back, calling back, and our policy became, you know what? These people are really, really busy. You might have to call them 10 times. So moving that baseline of expectation Mm, of like how long it takes someone Mm. to come in and care about their relationship, when you have 15 million plates you have to keep Mm -hmm. spinning and just having that realization and just moving that baseline of number of calls you have to make is a really simple thing. And we would get people sometimes on that eighth or ninth call saying, thank you for keeping trying with us. I I know we've been Mm -hmm. hard, but we really do want to come in. It's just life has been crazy. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So you have to be persistent, really persistent. Yes, yeah. it's persistent and patient. And kind, that yes. was the other thing, and kind. Mm-hmm. So, Which it can be difficult. Because you'd be persistent and then very frustrated with the person and then that doesn't help. So, yeah. so once we were able to have people understand why this was happening, I think they were able to not get so frustrated. And right, made a keep difference. those, keep mm-hmm. those um, walls down. Yeah. So you've mentioned a little bit about what the outcomes were. For listeners who aren't familiar with the intervention itself, can you describe a little bit about what those two sessions are? Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we sort of play off this integrative couple, behavioral couples therapy by Andy Christensen and, and the late Neil Jacobson. 
But part of what it's trying to do is we did sort of three things. We'd start with all that positive stuff, and it gave us a really great platform, I think, to then turn to the concerns. So the meat of the intervention was that turn. Mm -hmm. And what we did is have each person, we sort of did this in a very triangulated way. So we would talk to one partner and really dig in and understand their side of it, and then turn to the other partner and get their perspective, mm -hmm. and then help them see how the pat they're mm. getting into a pattern together. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And the yep. three things we did when we were talking about their concern is we would do sort of like um, Sue Johnson's emotion-focused couples therapy. We would try to get underneath to the more vulnerable emotions that they are probably not expressing to each other. So we typically express our frustration or anger, but we don't talk about how that event is making us feel sad or anxious yeah. or vulnerable. So we, would, we trained our facilitators mm -hmm. to really pull mm -hmm. that out. And I can't tell you how many times we have on video the other person going, oh my God, I had no idea you felt that way. I didn't realize yeah. that was doing that to you. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And they soften, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that was a hugely powerful thing. But the other powerful thing is we would often take that behavior and link it back to family of origin issues. Okay, so one of my favorite examples is we went in and it was a low-income couple. They were couch surfing. They didn't even have their own place mm. to live. Um, the husband was underemployed, the wife was unemployed and was constantly looking for a job, but she was depressed because she couldn't find anything. And so their problem was she would come home and be very sad and cry. He'd see her cry and just basically kind of withdraw and go to somewhere else in the house away from mm -hmm. her. And as we started to get her, him to talk about, we actually started with him. What's going on with you when you see her cry? And what mm -hmm. he went to is he felt ashamed because he couldn't, provide for her yeah. he felt like not a man mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. he felt anxious about their future like we were able to pull all that out and you yeah. could just see on mm -hmm. tape her face changing because mm -hmm. when we asked her about her experience she's like i thought you didn't care about me i thought oh. you didn't love me yeah i'm getting chills yeah. right now. i know yeah. and as she yeah. says that you see his face changing like oh my god i had no idea you thought that and this is all in mm -hmm. one session one session the first session mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then what we did is we asked him like in Amazing. your family of origin in your family growing up Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. did your family handle it when you were feeling sad or mm -hmm. down or upset? And they said, he said, they would just send, us, send me into my room until I could get myself together. Yeah. And again, you could see the light wow. bulb go under her head. She's like, yeah. oh, you're doing with me what your mom did with you. And he said, yeah. 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 So then when wow. we came back the second uh, session, we started giving him some techniques about how she really just wants you to be with her. You don't have to fix mm -hmm. it. Just keep her mm -hmm. company. Yeah. Keep her company in her sadness. Let her know you're there. Here's some ways you can do that. This is a way you can be a hero to her. Mm -hmm. And then talk with her about, because what she was doing is interpreting his behavior in a way that was sort of toxic and helping mm -hmm. her sort of think about how she could, you know, work with him. You know, if she was going that way, how could she maybe check in with him, ask him for what she needs, that kind of thing. Yeah. So if you can see how just it. a very brief intervention can cover a right. lot of ground. Yeah. And, be yeah. pretty, and then six months later, she came in to pick up her check and she said they were still struggling but she said, now I feel like we're in the foxhole together. Mm. Oh. Yeah. yeah. What a great That's phrase. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That cool? yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. So that session one, I think, is really interesting how they immediately get to um, mm. those strengths and concerns. There's a, a workshop or not, a worksheet that they fill out of a uh. whole list of strengths and concerns. And then they mark cool. all of them, you know, uh, somewhat to very much or, you know, not at all to very much. 
and then they list the three top strengths and the three top concerns and then they say which one do you mm. want to talk about today so while there may be a bunch of things there's one in particular that they actively choose to talk about and I think that really helps to cool. hone, narrow, us, in. Ha- hone yeah. us in really yeah. really yeah. quickly to get to mm-hmm. get to those things and then what I love about the feedback session is it's almost like a report on your relationship yeah. that they're yeah. given like yeah. a paper report yeah, that's right and the facilitator gives them um, ways to like very specific ways to um, help help them very very specific right. targeted feedback so it's it is almost like um, a doctor's visit for their That's their good. relationship yep. they get the assessment cool. and then the next session is yep. the feedback yep. and they're given okay this is what we recommend to help you here here and here it's less yep. sterile than yep. that but and actually what we moved to I think partly because James was discovering this was more effective and, and we agreed is um, we had a menu of things they could do, but we started with them brainstorming their own. Um, and what was really hmm. interesting is a lot of times between the first session and the second, because they had this new understanding, they were already starting to move and make their yeah. own changes. So that cool. actually was really cool. And then if they were stuck, we had the menu and could start giving all that to them and resources, mm-hmm. connecting resources in the community mm-hmm. and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So you know, trying to get them fo- focused toward the future and what are they going to do differently now. Um, nice. And that report's funny because about midway through, it was kind of a pain, and the facilitators didn't want to do it, and we were sort of debating whether we should keep doing it. And then we had the experience where, actually, it was an infidelity case where I think the infidelity happened several years before, and the wife didn't really think that the guy was cheating anymore at all. I think she believed that he was remorseful, but she still wanted to talk about it, and he would never talk about it. Sure. Yeah. And so that's what the facilitator kind of dug in with is what was going on. And so he was able to help the wife understand how ashamed he was. And, mm. and it wasn't because he didn't care, which is how she was reading it, but again, mm-hmm. because he was so ashamed. Um, and then we were able to help him understand why it was so important to her to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. He was still a little defensive in the follow-up. And at the one month, still not talking about it, but at the one month when we sent our um, uh, measures back to mm-hmm. him, it triggered him to go back and get that report, and he reread the report. Mm. And when she, she's another one who came to pick up the card at six months, and she's like, "I didn't. I wanted him to talk. Now he will not stop talking." <laughs> <laughs> and because he read the report, he came back in, and apparently he slammed it down. Because I get it now. I get why you need to talk. Aww. And he's like, "All right, let's start talking. Let's start. Here we go." Yeah, and that's all comes out. I know. So again, yeah. even something as big as infidelity, like this thing actually kind of knocks some mm-hmm. stuff loose. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. No, I, I, and I did the um, checkup. Yeah. My husband and yes, I did it right. uh, when, yeah. we, when we first got yeah. on to train one of the facilitators. And we got the report, and I really liked it. So I'm glad you yeah, we kept, kept it. it. Yeah, we ended up keeping it, much <laughs> to my facilitator's like. I know. It was a lot of work really for facilitators. More. Talk a little bit about the outcomes, because I think that's those are really cool, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what's cool is, again, like Patricia said, is for everybody, the whole group, there is a small, you know, small effect, but still significant effect from pre to post. Um, we don't have a control group, but what we know, like I think Don Balcom and Kurt Hallwig, and I can't remember all the people in that study, they know that when couples are looking for this kind of stuff, that they don't get better on their own. Like right. we know, so we could probably compare it to that effect size. It's like zero. Um, so anyway, there is a small effect size, and people do get better. But if you think about it, we've got everybody lumped in there. So there's some people that are just coming to do this because mm-hmm. you know they want to, yeah, let's just enhance our marriage. Some people are coming in because they just want the money, and right. they're not really struggling. And some people are, are coming in um, 
as James called, veiled help-seeking. So they're saying, we're coming in for the money, but uh, actually underneath, there really are significant. And I'd well, say, I like that phrase. Yeah. yeah. 30% of our folks were in that distressed range. Yeah. And it was, it was a good mm-hmm. amount. Mm-hmm. And so as Patricia said, those 30 really had room to move, and they moved. Yeah. Mm. And so they, you know, we get a moderate effect size, which for two sessions is pretty darn good on relationship That's satisfaction. That's amazing. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, like some of this was significant stuff. We have another story I like to tell where they told the facilitator, like, this is it. Like, if this doesn't work, we're divorcing. Wow. And the facilitator did amazing work. And they came back in and like the, the video on the first, they were like on either side of the couch and you could like feel the coldness just through the, yeah. you know, uh-huh. VCR. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. VCR, what decade <laughs> I know. Did you I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm 50. I'm 50. <laughs> so anyway. I'm just teasing. But you came back, and on the video, they're next. the second one, they're actually together yeah, with I their arms around each other. And the facilitator, I think wow. it was Adam's, like, what's changed? He said, well, when you first got here, I thought, she'll never change. And then now I'm realizing, oh, she'll never change. Oh, so oh like, that's oh, amazing. Sh- that's that's amazing. amazing. So again, it was, it's, so these were distressed folks that we were able to kind of uh. really change their perspective and kind of get them moving in another way. I remember one story about a couple because they're supposed to fill out their assessment packets separately. Uh-huh. And one of the, it was either the husband or the wife, like stapled it closed, like not just like the <laughs> yeah, corner, right. but like all along each yeah. edge multiple times because <laughs> did not want the partner to read any of it. And I was oh like, that God, is amazing. a level of intensity. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But but by the time yeah. they came back, they yeah, were they were doing a lot better. I know, and there were I mean there were some just crazy stories too. But um, so again, just and, and and some people really dealing with substance abuse, right. major mental disorders. Um, one of my favorite meeting stories, how people met, is like we went to a party and my friend told me he was just out of jail and that I should not talk to him. So I walked right over to him and I rubbed him on the head and said, "Let's get together." <laughs> just like, oh, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. I love that. And yeah, and they involved, got into a lot of substance use together. But by the time we got to them, they mm. were coming out of it and wanted to get clean together, and were coming to us to figure mm-hmm. out how they could stay sober and stabilize their relationship during that. And so they were a really cool couple. Yeah, a lot of the couples that I think uh, changed my stereotypes the most, we had a lot of couples come from methadone clinics because we were recruiting at methadone clinics. And I remember I didn't want to do that for a while because I thought it was too challenging. But yeah. yeah. But they were some of the most consistent couples we had where people who were coming out of a methadone clinic together and wanting to stay sober together. So Mm -hmm. not just that one story, there were multiple, multiple stories. It was amazing. Cool. And so, so the satisfaction changed, but also what's cool is that physical and psychological aggression. Now, we still need to go back and tease out the two of those. Right. And we did screen out for severe aggression because as we all know, that's Mm -hmm. best practice is not to put those folks in together. But the mild and moderate we took. And so we did, in fact, we kind of thought in the next round, round grant, we might have just incorporated this with everybody. But what we found Mm -hmm. is teaching people timeout techniques. We would do a quick Mm -hmm. just introduction to timeout in that feedback session made a huge difference. Couples had never thought about this technique. And talk ever. to us about what timeout technique is real quick. So timeout is when you start to notice that you're getting really um, aggravated. Like and so physiologically. Help, like physiologically. Your heart, yeah. So we help them try to identify like, mm-hmm. what tells you when you're starting to get really upset. When you're having that feeling, and we talked about not timeout like go sit in a corner, but like you know, on the game, like the UT Vols, they call a timeout when they're not playing well together, right? Exactly. And the other team does not follow the other team off the field going, you can't take a timeout. Like you let everybody take a timeout when they call a timeout, right? right? That's true. So we kind of framed it that way and just say you go and you regroup so that you can play better together. And so nice. go to your separate corners, find a way to calm yourself Brilliant. down. And so that you come back and remember you're on the same team and play well together. <sighs> 
I love it. Oh, I love that metaphor. Yeah, so it, brilliant. Yeah, James, let me tell you, James is the king of he, metaphors. Yeah. Like, I love doing oh my this project gosh. with him because I've picked up so many great metaphors. He's just brilliant in that regard. That's and amazing. And he sat in, he Zoomed or Skyped in on all of our supervision. So he and I together uh, supervised our folks. And yeah. it, was, it was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. But so I think that's why our aggression went down is we taught, particularly folks who are high on that, we sort of tucked in nice. the timeout stuff. Mm. And I think I'd like to do that more deliberately mm-hmm, next round. And then we also, um, you know, the intimacy, again, the more you learn that your pers- person's hurting, right, um, that, and, and you're able to sit and hear it without yelling at them, I think mm. that creates a sense, an emotional experience of intimacy that, that is really useful to couples. Um, and so I think that's why that moved. And certainly James's study, that was a, that was a big driver of their effects is the change in emotional intimacy. So there's another study that James did, uh, mm-hmm. the, the marriage checkup that he did over two years and not one. Yes. Um, and one and time we'll talk about that. I wish we had done that, but we didn't, we didn't put that into the grant. I wish we had. Because I think it's, there's a lot of utility in doing this once a year, like you should, right? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Practice what you preach. Yeah, yeah I know. Not, yeah, right? I know. Well. I know. In the next grant. Mm-hmm. In the next one. In the next one. The next one. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a couple of questions. You've kind of alluded to them already, but... Uh, a lot of times, like people come up to me because they know I do couples therapy, and they'll say, "How do I get my partner yeah. to engage on this?" And I think you've spoken to this a little bit about framing as a checkup, but I wonder if you could say mm-hmm. a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I think um, again, this comes sort of James' idea, but this, and that's what they kind of see in their data when they look at the reasons why people came in. I think two things were operating here is in his original study where they weren't paid as much as they were in our study, which I think is. An, an issue. Um, people, I think, did resonate with the fact that it wasn't therapy. So yeah, it wasn't yeah. mm-hmm. as intimidating because pe- people think therapy is going to like dig in and talk about all of your childhood stuff, which we yeah. do, but we did it kind of lightly. Or they think it's going to be mm-hmm. like six months, yes, 12 exactly. months, this yeah. huge, huge long process. Yeah. And so this is going to mm-hmm. be short. And so I think people feel like it's less, it's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. less investment in mm-hmm. some ways. And there was no financial investment either, right? From, right, right, from, from them. them. Exactly, and that's key. Yeah. Um, and also, for us, we did pay them quite a bit. Like, every time they filled out a survey, they got, like, $50. $50, yeah. And, and I think that that was, for a lot of our folks, a little bit of the um, help to get over the barrier. Although, I do think sure. that there were some people that were using, that really did want to get this, but use this as a good reason. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah. But I do think, and so I've been thinking as I've been talking with some of the people in our community about like if we want to reach low income, we may need to figure out what are the incentives yeah. that we need sure. to do. Because a lot of them is like, people yeah. need to have skin in the game, they need to pay. And I'm like, I don't, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, why do they need to? I don't, yeah. I don't think the so. The skin of the it's game is time. They're right. time. That's like it. time is so, yeah. 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 yeah and it's such an yeah. antique. It's such an antiquated way to think about therapy and getting people engaged in the support that they need that that why the financial incentive of them paying for the care right. is the skin in the game makes no sense. Right. And I'm I'm not sure we even have great evidence for no, that. No, I don't think we really do. I mean, I think there is some sense there needs to be some investment and some motivation. Sure. Right? Yeah. And I think they often think that financial piece is a proxy for that. But what they don't realize is that this really low income, particularly when we're getting into deep poverty, um, things work a little bit differently. And right. I think mm-hmm. your point right there about the time being an investment is huge. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal mm-hmm. that because I think that's really important. And I think also <laughs> some of it comes from the fact that there are a lot of these good, well-meaning, they're coming from a lot of these good, well-meaning church groups that I work with, and they get very frustrated with people when they don't show up for things. Mm. 
Sure. And that goes back to the training that I had to do is there's a good reason mm-hmm. why they're not showing up. It's not that they're not yeah. invested. It's that their lives are chaotic and they have different different um, contingencies operating in their lives than, and what, if, than what we have. And if they feel like they're going to be judged for being late, yep. they probably aren't sure going to show up. Come. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would be hard for me to get over. I, so. I totally agree. Yeah. Yep. So one thing I want to talk about bringing that curtain back a little bit is how, I mean, it wasn't terribly difficult to publish, but right. it was surprising some of the, the pushback that yeah. we got in it's publishing the first journal that we submitted. Yeah. yeah. So the publishing process, for those who don't know, you write the paper and you submit it to a journal. And typically what happens is that journal will say, flat out rejection, no, we're not interested in this. Or they might say, well, you can revise it and resubmit and and we'll consider it again. And usually that is thought to maybe be on the steps towards your improving it. Um, and uh-huh. uh, and then maybe um, they'll reconsider if you improve it enough, they, you, they might accept it. And so this is part of the scientific process of, you know, the, your peers reviewing the research before it, it gets published. So we submitted to um, a, a really good, maybe the top journal uh, mm-hmm. in the in the field, um, and they gave us what's called that revise and resubmit, and we um, made all of the the corrections mm-hmm. that they wanted, yep. which I mean oh. weren't that terrible. And then they came back. I mean, how many revisions did we do for them? I, I feel like it was like did, oh. I think we did two, two, actually. two yeah. different oh, revisions, yeah. and then they came back and asked us for more things, so we gave them oh. to them again. I ha- I hate knowing, I, I hate feeling that I know. <laughs> yeah, right. I hate it so much. So what was really fascinating and honestly infuriating at the time is ulti- obviously ultimately they rejected it. But the reason why they rejected it was because of our sampling procedure. So like we said before, we did not have a control group, yeah. which is thought to be kind of the gold standard of intervention research where you have the intervention and you, you compare it to a group that did not receive mm-hmm. the intervention to see if like change that occurs really actually was because of the intervention and because of the method that we recruited which Mm -hmm. was the snowball method that we alluded to earlier of um, participants recruiting other friends and family their friends and family they didn't like that they wanted just like a uh, a pure uh, sampling, which technique. I think is ridiculous, uh, frankly. Which is, yeah. uh, especially with these very this difficult exactly. to access group, you mm-hmm. have to form mm-hmm. this trust and these mm-hmm. kinship networks yeah. in order to gain access into these communities. And that ghost recruiter that I talked about earlier, he was actually so. These were friends and fam- like friends, family, people he was living with. It was in the predominantly black section of Knoxville where it's really hard to get in, really hard to develop the trust. So the fact that we were doing that, that was amazing, and it right. yeah. allowed us yeah. to actually increase our minority sample but they didn't like that the fact that we put i mean maybe we shouldn't have put that in there but we we thought that was the cool thing about yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, right. people were doing that and and to me and i think efficacious. yeah what really yeah. upset me is it seemed a very elitist mm-hmm. yeah sure um yeah sure very reason to reject something because it didn't meet the standards but there's no knowledge and with with no recognition of what is real in these communities. Yeah, right. And to me, I was telling Patricia earlier, like, it just, I feel like my field, if we don't wrestle with this and get on the right sure. side of things, like, we're going to die yeah. because, you know, we are not diverse in our samples. We right. are not. Very white, mm-hmm. very wealthy, mm-hmm. very educated. Right. And and then the treatments we develop end up only working for those folks or, or only right. relevant for those folks because that's, 
who we're looking at. And so I just, it really bothers me a lot. And that, that and the fact is, what really also bothers me, all of the things that they rejected us were there in the very beginning. So right. why yeah. not just reject us reject. outright? Oh. Yeah. yeah. And they actually said, this yeah. is a great, one of the things they loved it, they said, this yeah. is a great population. Yes. We really, really need more research with this type of sample. We're like, then how yeah. else are we going to get how it? How are we going to get these <laughs> people? Right. Anyway, yeah. so there were many, many uh, conversations and rant yeah. sessions yeah. between us. Like, unbelievable. Yeah. But we sent it to Family Process next. Right. Yeah. Um, and they... Uh, publish it. Very similar process. We had a number of, of revisions, but they were all um, reasonable and, mm-hmm. and doable. Though I will be honest, anytime someone comes back to me that I need to change my statistics, like we were talking about in therapy, <laughs> my heels automatically dig, dig in, in. I, and I think in my head, fuck off, where's your degree? <laughs> it's just not a, a healthy response. I mean, I at least I know that, and, yeah. and I process down, and I'm like, okay, we probably some editing of the response a little. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. The first day, the first day, <laughs> like like familiar. Got to tone yeah. this down a little. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That's why I need <laughs> teams. Teams. That's why you work in That's teams. Because yeah. right. yeah. people are like, familiar. I've, I've seen that response. <laughs> yeah. Sarah's like, I've seen that response. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, it finally got published, but just a little behind the scenes of that process can be very frustrating sometimes. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, the focus uh, here, and it sounds like of this intervention um, in how it originates, is on romantic partners. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. um, in the family medicine clinic I work in, it's an incredibly underserved population, and a lot of people bring someone with them. Sometimes it's just out of like transportation needs. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's out of interpreting needs. For I mean, it's just um, assistance in like mobility for a lot of different reasons. But a lot of times it's not necessarily a romantic partner. Right. And so I'm curious if there's any indication that this type of intervention might work for other kinds of dyads in other kinds of relationships. I I think it would be a very very interesting mm-hmm. and important mm-hmm. next mm-hmm. step especially when that could we be really cool yeah. yeah especially when we know that people are marrying at lower um, lower rates especially in lower income communities and relying more on kinship networks or maybe not even more but we know that there is a very heavy reliance mm-hmm. on kinship networks yeah. uh, for mm-hmm. support i think that transitioning yeah that would be very important. And I'm sitting here thinking like the study that you guys did that's blowing up everywhere. <laughs> I keep thinking like, oh man, I know them. <laughs> Look at that. But I think it points to the fact that how important and how difficult, right? Yeah. Our extended family and our, you know, um, and so, yeah, I think finding an intervention that could help those relationships in a quick and dirty way. Absolutely. Is, yeah, really I think you're right. And it's really cool. And I think one of the challenges in transitioning that would be obviously family members don't necessarily live in the same town and mm-hmm. m- maybe not even the same right. home if they are in the same town, uh, but getting those people in right. proximity. But even starting with, as Sarah saying, like who's showing up to these um, physicians' right. offices or family medicine centers and, and physicians being alert to the stress um, and how that stress could be impacting physical mm-hmm. um, outcomes, I think could be really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Looks like we have our next project, folks. <laughs> so I wanted to talk through a couple of take-homes. One of them for me is for fellow researchers out there, which would just be focus on these hard uh, populations to access. It's very, very important, even though it's maybe hard to access them. Mm-hmm. Fo- you know, 
focusing on them is is important and keep on trying without that research or the getting the research published because mm-hmm. everybody even the the creme de la creme that is Christy Gordon mm-hmm. gets rejected at these for insane ferocious rates yeah, yeah ferocious ferocious, ferocious, ferocious rates so true uh, but just keep at it get that knowledge yeah. out there because someone will be appreciative of it yeah. when it's out there have you seen that people are publishing their shadow vetoes have you seen those no their shadow vetoes so they they you know yeah. we we just publish this or do our vetoes of the things we got published <laughs> people are now doing their shadow vetoes of like how many times the papers got rejected yeah. before they got oh on to there or I like papers that they've written that never got published yes. or yeah. grants that never got published. in the drawer they're mm-hmm. so great they're so validating mm-hmm. yeah oh good okay yeah. i need i need to look at those because sometimes i just get so <laughs> beaten oh, down yeah. like <laughs> well you know I remember, I think I was three years into the tenure process. Which is about where I am. That's what, I was, that's what I'm saying. Is I remember uh, I was just getting rejected left and right and left and right and putting grants in and getting rejected. And I was just like, I cannot do this thing. I'm not, it's gonna, not sustainable. I'm not, we're twins. I know. But just a couple of decades. Like, I'm not going to make it. Oh, my gosh. But what the gift of all of that yeah. was actually, I decided, right, either I get out now. Right. Or do I believe enough in what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to say and the work that I'm trying to do that I'll stick it out and see what happens? Yeah. And the gift there, I think, was that was I've decided I believe in this crap and I'm gonna like stick with it, even if like the viewers mm-hmm. aren't getting it yet, they will. They I'm will. just gonna have to keep going. And they did. And like, fi- you know, finally stuff started to fall in that last bit. And I think part of it is I learned from the review process. Right, a lot about how to pitch it, what didn't work, what oh, did. So you're suggesting mm-hmm. maybe the reactivity is the best <laughs> way? Well, no, no, no. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah, I mean, for right. me. Yeah, like, it that no, way. no, it's probably not for me either. Right. No, it's funny because I ha- literally had a conversation with my husband over Christmas break. Mm-hmm. I was like, I need to find a different career. Like, what am I qualified to do at a similar pay I rate? I had that same thought. And yep. my husband yep. looked at me and was like, nothing. Literally nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's literally nothing else this that you can it. do at a similar This is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> with all the benefits, I know. Yeah. Academia like, puts those golden handcuffs on you, yeah. I think. <laughs> I know. But, it, you know, and there's been different periods, too. Like, even after I got tenure, like, I went through periods like that. And I think even this, I'm pushing a boulder up a hill. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and we did. But but I think more and more people are starting to listen and pay attention to the kind of work we've been doing. And um, it's just, you have to, but the, the gift, like I said, is digging down deep and really believing, like, this is important. Right. Like, I want this out there. So... Yeah, motivational words. I like them. I needed it. Thank you. <laughs> what What other take homes <laughs> that you can do a lot in a brief session? Yes. Yeah. Therapy doesn't necessarily have to be for both therapists and people wanting to go. It doesn't have to be uh, long, months long, right? Yeah, or years long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the takeaways I took is the importance of intentionality. Right. Yes. If you sit down mm-hmm. and yes. talk about your relationship, even for a brief time, yeah. it can have a big effect. So. Yeah. Be cognizant about that and try to do it every once in a while. Even if it's not in a structured setting like this, using other tools we've talked about here and that Mm -hmm. are available could really set you up for being able to adapt to the stresses of life and the changes in yourself and your partner across time. And you can do that without having to like pay hundreds and thousands (laughs) of dollars or, or, you know, go see a therapist. I endorse that a hundred percent. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also really love this um, focus um, on uncovering soft emotions, mm. underlying yeah. expressions of anger. Because while it would really, really be helpful to have a facilitator walk you through what that is and help you find and name those those softer emotions underneath, mm-hmm. um, I think it is something that 
um, if like if you're listening and you're hearing that this is a valuable piece of this type of intervention, r- taking some risks and being yeah, vulnerable yeah. in naming those other emotions um, in order to kind of share that with your partner, but also to kind of acknowledge that for yourself could be a really powerful thing that listeners could just do on their own. Yeah. It's hard to do because, like you said, it takes a risk. Sure. And we don't want to sure. take risks, but those kinds of risks sure. really pay off. They really, really pay. yeah. yeah. Yep. So everybody out there, go get them, Tiger. We got your back. <laughs> Take those risks. Take those risks. <laughs> Woo-hoo! Boo! Woo-hoo! Yeah! Finally time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Did your parents or grandparents have a saying about love or marriage? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love and family that you thought was odd? Or maybe it struck you as poignant. Mm-hmm. Maybe you heard something about relationships in a movie or a TV show that made you just think. In this section of the show, we talk about that advice or those sayings and based on science. I mean, you guys, this is science. We decide if it was good or bad. If you have been on the receiving end of some relationship advice and you'd like to talk to us, please send it to us. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775, email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a a good old-fashioned message. I mean, you could also send us like a pigeon or something with a message on it, but I don't really know where to tell you to send that pigeon. An owl. An owl, Harry Potter style. An owl will definitely know. Um, While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your loved ones. In fact, in an effort to continue to expand our listenership, we have another recommendation for how to tell friends and family about this podcast because we know it can be so difficult. So... Here is a short scenario. In this scenario, um, this is a listener and the listener's brother, played wonderfully by um, Jacob Priest. Um, They are um, walking into a restaurant. Listener's brother. Hey, did you watch the latest episode of Schitt's Creek? So good. Listener. Yes, OMG! Isn't it wonderful how loving the relationship between Moira and Johnny are? It's so rare in pop culture to see actual depictions of long-lasting, loving relationships, especially among older couples. It seems like society really wants us to ignore the sexuality and loving feelings among older couples. Don't you think? I can't. I can't. What is this? Listener's brother. Wow. That is such an amazing deep thought. And you are so right. Did you just come up with that yourself? Listener. Oh, I wish. I heard it on this great podcast, Attached. They debunk bad relationship advice and tropes with science. Like real life science. You should subscribe and listen. You can find it on all podcast platforms. Listener's brother. Wow, I totally will. Thanks for the recommendation. You're the best. They high five. <laughs> wow, just a simple, natural conversation between two um, what? loving siblings. What just happened? <laughs> what? Did you all like rehearse that at some point where I was not involved? You just went for it right now. That is remarkable. I'm going to be a desperate. thousand percent. It feels real desperate. I'm going to be a thousand percent honest with you right now, Sarah. We just did that. Like, no practice at all? I mean, get at us. Anybody who wants to hire us for acting side gigs? Yeah, we should probably be extras on Shit's Creek. I'm just saying, Dan Levy, you out there listening? Get at us. 
Um, so today, using the expertise of Christy, we are going to talk about advice that we read in an article about infidelity. So the article, again, we'll list on our description. We'll send a link on our description and on our Twitter. And the article is called How to Get Over Cheating, 10 Things You Shouldn't Do, so should not do after your partner cheats. And this is from Reader's Digest, a very high quality production, no, publication, <laughs> by Stacy Fintuck. Are you guys ready? Yes, let's do it. I don't think we'll have time to get to all 10. Yeah. Uh, but we'll do yeah, some. That's a lot. First, don't try to get even. <laughs> you may want to talk trash Talk trash your partner on Facebook, fantasize about king his car, I'm going to add in, or her car, <laughs> or maybe have an affair of your own. In the movies, when people are learning how to get over cheating, their first course of action is sometimes to get even. Thoughts? So I think this is good advice. You know, <laughs> if, you, if your partner cheated on you and you want to stay in the relationship, probably the best thing is to not go out and cheat on someone else or key their car, right? I think it's okay to have strong negative emotions and react strongly to finding out that your partner may have cheated on you. But yeah, probably not the best advice to be like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> since you cheated on me, I'll cheat on you and then we'll be even and it'll be great. Yeah. Probably not, probably not great. That's yeah, good advice. Yeah, I think kind of in reference to like our discussion earlier about soft uh, emotions, the intervention. Yeah, yeah. Revenge is like a yeah. Revenge feels like a really kind of um, angry, aggressive turn that is probably kind of covering up the real processing of like the pain of loss and betrayal that needs to happen. So I think it's it's probably good advice because it's it's not only problematic and potentially involving like um, legal trouble based on this <laughs> compounding um, the effects of yeah, what's already happening. Right. Uh, but also preventing like necessary really, really hard work that has to happen. I would agree with all of you. Although I would say one of the things I think it's kind of nuanced is that as much as we also, it depends a lot on the primary emotion, as much as we want folks to go to those underlying vulnerable emotions, I think also some of the people I work with need to get angry. Yeah. They need mm -hmm. to talk about their anger, need to accept their anger, need to be able to vent their anger. Now, not mm -hmm. necessarily the get even part, because what I've noticed is no matter what people do to try to get even, it's never gonna even the score. Yeah. That's the one mm -hmm. thing people need to realize. It's not ever gonna even it out, and it, like you all said, it's gonna make it worse. But the anger, I think, is, a legitimate emotion and shouldn't be shoved under the rug. So yeah. that's the only place I would make more nuanced in that yeah. advice. Mm -hmm. And I think what to do with that anger, I think mm -hmm. really would be the hard yes. part because it's yes. a lot yeah, of Yeah, not, not keying a car maybe. That might right. not yeah. be yeah. the Figuring out how to channel yeah. it yeah. somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> exactly. So or the revenge affair, you're right. That's really yeah, bad. revenge affair. Yeah. Um, so we all agree, good advice. Okay, so number two, don't fall apart. It's very normal to have a good cry or two or three after a breakup. And when the breakup follows a, follows a long-term relationship, expect to need time to recover. Realize that this situation won't define you. I think this is bad advice, right? Like, yeah. people should be able to feel whatever emotions they are feeling right. when something yes. like this happens. Like, as you were saying, if it's anger, be angry. Yeah. Like, it's not going to benefit you from like of being stoic okay i'm gonna cry two or three times and then i'm gonna get over this <laughs> exactly. no. like three is the max you can max yeah. out it three times crying otherwise then, then you need to get over it like what is and, happening to you and you i know. think that if Baby. you and your partner are committed to staying together after an affair yeah. there's going to be years yeah. in the future where 
those emotions are going to still bubble up. And if you're not supposed to fall apart, that could actually undermine what you're trying to build as a partnership. So Mm -hmm. bad advice. And can I also point out, this is two advices in a row where I have not been on the fence. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) I mean, I do want to get rewarded for that. I need that. that. Let the letters come pouring in for Jacob and his ability to decision make. Yeah, I agree. This is um, really bad advice. I I actually think um, uh, the being stoic and not showing emotion is potentially some of these contributing factors that start to occur in couples Mm. where people have to, not entirely and not universally, but um, where infidelity maybe starts to occur. There's not Mm -hmm. enough like falling apart or sharing of that emotion. Uh, And so I think it could actually probably in some couples be really therapeutic that people start to get really raw and really honest Mm -hmm. um, in order to um, rebuild their relationship if that's what they decide to do. Yep. Amen. You're absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, there's a ton of research showing and and when we go to the next piece of advice, I think is going to be linked, but these are traumatic events. Right. Very traumatic events. These are humiliating events, and people actually experience levels of PTSD-like responses and depression. Yeah. And so I, don't, I think we should take that seriously, and I think you're absolutely right that people need to be able to free, be free to feel what they're feeling, express it, deal with it, and not shove it under the rug. And I, felt, I found that was a very judgy, the way it was written was extremely judgy, yeah. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, problematic. Well, I think that's like a, also a, a cultural tendency to judge people who experience infidelity as if like they did something wrong, right? That there is that mm-hmm. judgment uh, mm-hmm. about right. um, and, infidelity. Yeah, there's a lot of judgment around this issue. Huge yeah. on both sides. Not that we're celebrating right. infidelity, but just right. knowledge that it, right. there mm-hmm. is a lot they of judge judgment. They judge the person mm-hmm. that did it, but they also judge the person who is quote unquote the victim, which is the next piece next of advice. Which is <laughs> yeah. don't play the victim. So let's dive right into that. So the next piece of advice is don't play um, the victim. It's true that in all likelihood, you didn't deserve to have, in all likelihood, you didn't deserve to have someone cheat on you. But it doesn't mean you should wallow in self-pity. Playing the victim will keep you feeling helpless and damaged. And it will continue to keep you feeling bad about yourself. This is terrible advice. Right? I First of all, I just, as you were alluding to, I hate the framing of, like, don't play the victim card. Yeah. No, like, that's just like saying disown how you're feeling. Right. Like, this really, you just need to get over this and, and be okay and be yep. strong. Like, no, this can hurt. It can be painful. It is real. It is, yes. mm-hmm. it can be earth shattering. Like, yep. your concept of trust in your relationship can fall apart finding this out. And that's not playing the victim card. That's being human. Yes. And so I feel like... And seeing reality for what it is, right? Yeah. Like, first of all, I should have prefaced this with two. If you are going through a really bad breakup or, like, find out that your partner cheated on it, go listen to Dashboard Confessional because there is no better (laughs) music to deal with infidelity than some great emo. and okay, just I'm not really sure if that's like based in oh, science based. That's based. Science. No, no, that that's, is, no, uh, no, no. But music can help. Music, sure, music I think can there help. There is some science under that. Yeah. Uh, no, this is my my anecdote for okay, okay. like uh, anecdote doesn't equal data, but it equals my experience. So you're getting some of that too. But the best line probably ever written about infidelity was written by Chris Caraba when he said, "Your hair is everywhere." Screaming infidelities, and oh, I'm forgetting the last part of it. <laughs> screaming infidelities and taking its wear. Your hair. Anyway, but I don't get it. But sure. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, Who's ever good at like poetry? Is it the other woman's hair is everywhere. Oh, yes. is that what I mean? totally get that. Yeah, like All you right. see okay. it anyway. But <laughs> oh, oh, check oh, out oh, that. Okay. But bad advice. Oh, that's okay. all I gotta say. Bad advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. T- I agree. Terrible advice. Also, what is a victim card? Yeah. Like, yeah. How, and how does one? How do you get one? You've if yeah. you've earned one. Now you're not allowed to play it. It doesn't even make sense. And then I'm thinking about how we just described reacting to like. A journal saying we might not publish this, but try again. <laughs> like, if that's the intensity of our reaction to like maybe there's hope. In the intensity um, of my to think reaction, about yeah, like sure. judging people. <laughs> well, but I mean to think about judging people for yeah. their reaction to this kind yeah. of really incredible betrayal um, just feels really yeah. super problematic. Yeah. So our my um, the work that we did back when I was doing a lot more work on infidelity, we actually based it on a trauma model because I was also looking at work on violated assumptions by Ronnie Jenna Fullman and um, the cognitive processing therapy, which right now is a very favorite therapy for uh, treating mm-hmm. PTSD. And both mm-hmm. of those models talk about we have assumptions about how we think we are in the world, how we think the world are, how we think other people are. And when a trauma occurs, it blows those assumptions up. And a lot of the anxiety and depression and anger and all those things that we feel come from those disrupted and violated assumptions. And when I was reading that, I was thinking, holy cow, that's exactly what's going on here. I believe that my partner is looking out for me. My partner's keeping me safe. My partner values me. There's all these dimensions. And then Mm -hmm. I believe that I can trust my judgments about my partner. Mm -hmm. I I believe I've influenced over what happens in my... There's all kinds of things that when I discover an affair, just get blown to pieces. Yeah. And right. so you are understandably traumatized. That's what trauma is, is mm-hmm. trauma. Like, I can't mm-hmm. trust anything. Everything right. I thought was real is not real. It's unsafe, yeah. And unsafe, exactly. I do not feel safe. And so I think you do feel victimized. Now, really, when you look at what these, this person's trying to say, it is a little bit um, nuanced, because they say, don't believe these myths about cheating. When you look at that link, what they're actually trying to do here is a little bit play this idea that um, infidelity is much more nuanced than just having a perpetrator mm. and a victim. Yeah. Mm. And I like that, but they didn't, yeah. I think, communicate that very well here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have to kind of dig under their <laughs> exactly, intentions to understand right. their I know. And their instead meetings. it leads the poor person who's feeling traumatized, again, feeling kind of blamed and judged for having these really difficult, extremely painful emotions. And so, I, you know, I like their underlying intention I think delivery is just a little risky there yeah so that was very kind of you to say that for them <laughs> well or, I also yeah. mean these poor people wrote this <laughs> like, <that's true. laughs> ripping it apart like I do we like the first one <laughs> that's true we did. they gave good advice there and this next one is spot on I'm gonna say it okay time. so the the next one um don't get the kids involved I think speaks for its itself Jacob good or bad advice I'm going to say good advice, you know, especially when I deal with divorcing couples, they really, Mm. I mean, one of the main things to do is try to make sure they're not using their kids as bargaining chips or to pass emotional messages because that could be really, yeah, really damaging on the kids. Um, Also, I do think, though, that in some respects, it's good not to intentionally bring the kids in, but the kids are going to sense something's going on. And I think it is important depending Mm. on the age and developmental Mm. level of the kid to have conversations Mm -hmm. around the emotions that are happening so they're Mm -hmm. not experiencing this silence which can be really scary Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a really good point so don't don't bring them in 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 terms of triangulation but perhaps bring them in in a developmentally appropriate way Mm -hmm. to let them know kind of what's going on so they can put labels on the stuff that they're already sensing Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah no, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm in absolute agreement. Um, I think a lot of times 
um, kids can be, and depending on the age too, I mean, if they're teenagers or mm-hmm. or even adult children mm-hmm. um, that maybe even discover an affair before their other parent yeah. discovers yes. an affair is going on. Um, sometimes kids are involved at whatever point because other decisions have been made, but I think if they're involved, you can't then cut them out of all of those discussions, mm-hmm. uh, just assuming that they can do their own healing or not knowing any more about it will be better if they're already in it for whatever reason. They need some assistance processing. Yeah. Great point. Great point. And I also tell couples that they're often afraid of the damage they're doing to their kids by having their kids see this. But but what we actually know from research is that kids who are able to see conflict and then good reconciliation yes. yeah. actually are much better off down the line. Mm-hmm. Right. So they have a model for what healthy mm-hmm. uh, conflict and resolution, like you're yeah. saying, looks like mm-hmm. so they can enact it. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I can talk about many couples that I've seen where they've gone through this, but they've been able to sort of, like you guys are talking about, deal with their kids in a very healthy way, and the kids can see them put this back together. Mm-hmm. And the kids have talked about how it means a lot to them and to watch their parents go through that process. So good advice. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you, Christy, awesome. for joining us. Yes, we really thank appreciate you so much. your yeah. wisdom and so sharing much with fun. us. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you yeah. had fun. Yeah. Um, Loved it. And thank you all for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or tweet us about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. All right.